In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Over the next three weeks, we're going to hear of three different miracles in Matthew's Gospel. What are we to do with miracles? How are we to regard them? What should we think about them? Let me offer three quick points about biblical miracles that will give us some handles for making heads or tails of things. First, miracles are extremely rare, even in the Bible. You know, we read the, the pages of Scripture and we see them all over the place, but we often fail to remember that the events themselves occurred sometimes hundreds of years apart. And the fact that they occurred, that was the reason that the writers of the Scriptures saw fit to put pen to paper and see, say, this miraculous thing happened, and so now I've got to write about it. So it kind of gives us this impression sometimes that it happens all the time in the Scriptures. But if you look at like the Old Testament, the miracles, pretty, they're spread out pretty far apart. And whenever one happened, it was a big deal. When Jesus comes on the scene, he's doing miracles left and right, almost as if to say that the miracles themselves aren't that big of a deal, but this man is. That's what Jesus shows us. So it's wrong-headed whenever churches build entire ministries on the expectations of, of the miraculous, as, as we think of it. So, you know, stuff like faith healings and, and snake oil and stuff like that. God has not promised miracles in those specific ways. Rather, he has promised to work the miracle of faith in the means of grace that he has entrusted to his church. That's where the Holy Spirit is at work. That is where he is active as he brings the gospel and the sacraments to bear on all creation. It isn't that God is incapable of miracles. It isn't that God is unwilling to do them. He's certainly willing and able to perform them, and he does at times. However, the chief miracle that God has enacted to rescue the world from sin and death has occurred in the resurrection of Christ. That is the single miracle to which all other miracles point. In the resurrection, God has given us a grand finale of sorts to all miracles that will hold us over to the last day, whenever we ourselves will participate in our own resurrection. All the miracles that the apostles were able to perform in the early days of the church, they were all connected in some way to that resurrection, which is why Jesus gave them that authority, so that they may testify of the resurrection, that he has come, he has died, and he has been raised. And that leads me to the next point. So biblical miracles, miracles today, even biblical miracles, extremely rare. Second, biblical miracles tell us something about God's eschatological kingdom. A fancy way of saying what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be like. You can think of it this way. Every time you see a miracle occur in the Bible, it's, it's God's fully accomplished and perfect future coming to visit the people in the Bible. It's something coming from the future to the past. So, Whenever a miracle occurs in our day, it's the same thing. Imagine that, imagine that God's future kingdom is like this giant oak tree. 
You know, this strong, sturdy oak tree that has, is in full blossom. It's fully mature, fully realized. And then that oak tree has branches that stretch out all across human history. Whenever we see a miracle in the Bible, it's like an acorn falls from the oak tree. For example, whenever Lazarus is raised in John chapter 11, it's a little little acorn falling off the tree of God's perfect future, which finds its fulfillment in Christ's resurrection, but that will nonetheless be fully realized, fully experienced on the last day when he comes for us and when he raises us. So that's number two. Not only does it show us what the future kingdom of God is like, but lastly, it shows us what the kingdom of God is like as it has come to us in Jesus Christ. So these miracles show us that in Jesus, God has visited and redeemed his people. God has truly walked among his people and brought them a taste of what is to come for those who trust in his promises, which are actually demonstrated and enacted in Jesus' miracles. And they show us that Jesus has authority over all creation. Authority over all creation, both physical and spiritual. The things that we see and the things that we don't. And so over the next few weeks, we'll see that Jesus really is running the show, even whenever it doesn't look like it. And he exercises this authority over creation so that we may believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, God with us in human flesh. But each miracle, as we will see, also highlights a different aspect of Jesus' authority. So exactly how does Jesus run the show? So consider with me today in our passage how this shows us Jesus' authority to bless. His authority to bless. Jesus wanted to be left alone for a while. His disciples had brought him some terrible news. The kingdom of God had suffered violence at the hands of a wicked and perverse king, and John the Baptist had been decapitated. We're actually going to have a day dedicated to that in, in the church calendar coming up as we observe the, the, uh, the martyrdom of John the Baptist. But this is what had just happened. So Jesus went to a deserted place on the other side of the sea, perhaps to mourn his friend. And though he wanted to be left alone, the crowds followed him, likely hours away from their homes, way out of their way to get to Jesus. It's Jesus' day off. And there they were, by the thousands, coming to him with open begging hands, wanting him, needing him to do something for them. But rather than responding to them callously, rather than groaning and complaining, rather than saying, how dare they approach me on my day off? Can't they see that I'm mourning my friend? I just want to be left alone. Jesus responds with compassion. He felt compassion for them. It's the same feeling, if you can remember a few weeks ago, same feeling he had whenever he saw the crowds 
uh, as he looked out on the crowds and he, he felt sorry for them. He felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were harassed and helpless. Same idea. He had compassion for them. And so he healed their sick. And the disciples were there, no doubt, seeing Jesus perform the, this miracle of healing, which often goes overlooked in this little reading. Jesus is right there demonstrating his authority over sickness and over the physical creation itself through his healing. They saw him literally reach out his hand and touch people and make them well. Which is why their reaction is kind of strange. Whenever they ran into a real problem, their reaction was way off. It was not congruent with what they were seeing Jesus do. Because they noticed that it was evening. They knew that people were going to be hungry. And so they came to Jesus, which is the right move. But their words didn't suggest that Jesus could do anything at all about the situation. In their minds, they thought, okay, he can heal the sick, but when it comes to the material daily needs of bodily sustenance, the people had to do for themselves. They were better off leaving and going into the marketplace and getting food before it was too late. You know, once upon a time, some of those very same disciples had seen what happened at a wedding feast in a town called Cana. They had run out of wine, but Mary knew exactly what to do. And even though Jesus initially attempted to brush her off, she insisted that he do what only he could do. And that was to provide. That was to exercise his authority over the material creation. That was to bring a, a taste of the future kingdom of God into the present so that they might feast and rejoice. Mary had shown the disciples how this was done. But they had forgotten. So, as I heard one pastor once suggest, Jesus threw the disciples a hot potato. You give them something to eat. It was a test. He threw them this hot potato in hopes that they would what? Throw it back to him. That's what he wanted them to do. But rather than throw the hot potato right back to Jesus, they mustered what little food they had saved for dinner that night and they started to run the numbers. They had only five loaves and two fish, barely enough to feed the 12 of them. That was their dinner that night. What was Jesus up to? Why would he command them to carry out this fool's errand? Why would he set them up to fail? Because he wanted them to look to him to fix it. He wanted them to look to him to do what only he could do. Because this Christ, who within that same hour demonstrated his authority over bodily ailments, wanted them to understand that addressing hunger was small potatoes for the Son of Man. So he gave them the answer that he was looking for. He gave them the answer to the test that he put before them. He said, bring them to me. Bring them here. Then he had everyone sit down while he blessed the bread and the fish 
And he gave it back to the disciples to then distribute to the crowds. And imagine their shock as they took one fistful of bread and passed it around and then another and then another and another. And to begin with, there were only five loaves, but now there were dozens and then hundreds and then thousands. The two fish were now too many to count as well. And when they had carried out this impossible task, they were left with 12 baskets full of loaves. I'm no math whiz, but starting out with five loaves of bread and two fish and ending up with 12 full baskets of bread, even after you fed a crowd of 5,000 plus, to me, that counts as a miracle. 12 baskets. One for each of the disciples. Imagine now each one of them standing there holding a basket and seeing the contents. Imagine them looking up at Jesus. And imagine the look on Jesus' face. Not disgust, not disappointment, but a knowing smile. I told you so. Then imagine them coming to their senses and then realizing the point of this test. Oh yeah, nothing is impossible for this man. We should have gone to him sooner. But as they no doubt had some level of realization, it only brought with it more questions about what sort of man this was. Questions that we're going to explore more as we hear another miracle next week. Now consider this again. Consider the meaning of a biblical miracle. God's future kingdom has come in the person of Jesus Christ. When Jesus came on the scene, the new creation is present because Jesus has come to to fulfill and enact it in the lives of his disciples, and in the lives of his church today. As the Son of God, he has authority over everything. And we see in this miracle that he uses that authority to bless. Instead of turning the crowds away while he was on break, he used his authority over sickness to reach out his healing hand Instead of sending them home to get their own food, he instead reached out his providing hand to feed them until they were satisfied. The God who had once fed his people manna in the wilderness was now doing it again. The God of Israel who protected and preserved his people in the Old Testament was now here in the flesh and he was doing his saving activity again. So why involve the disciples? Why play the game there whenever Jesus could have very well made bread appear out of thin air? Why have them bring him the loaves? Why, why did Jesus give it to them to then give to the crowds? Because Jesus wanted to teach them how authority works. When he said, you give them something to eat, 
This was not only a challenge in the moment to teach them that they were helpless to do it, it was also a precursor. It was also a preview, a thumbnail of their task, which was to bring the gospel to all the nations. You give them something to eat. They were going to take Jesus, the bread of life, and his gospel to the ends of the earth and distribute it to the masses. They were going to preach Jesus so that those who inclined their ear to his word would eat and be satisfied, as our Old Testament passage says in Isaiah 55. Jesus was giving them authority to bless. Jesus has given us authority to bless. He used his authority over creation to enter into it, to die that he might conquer sin and death which have corrupted it, and to rise again as our guarantee of the new creation. One where we will never hunger or thirst again. But in the meantime, as we go through life in this desolate world, we are called to trust him for all of our needs in body and in soul. And as we come to him, he uses his authority to bless us. And then he tells us, you give them something to eat. He has blessed us and authorized us to bring this bread of life to others so that they may eat and be satisfied. God uses us to be agents of the new creation in this world as Jesus now works through his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is still running the show. And he invites us along for the ride. Here in this miracle, you see that God provides you with all that you need to support this body and life. Whenever you don't believe that he's got it covered, look to the cross. Look to the cross where he has proven his care and his compassion for you by bleeding and dying for your sins. You see, your greatest need was not bread. Your greatest need is not earthly sustenance. Your greatest need is forgiveness. And not only has he met at church, but he has done so abundantly. Abundantly. He has given you forgiveness. He gives you forgiveness now in spades. Because his blood is not just the blood of any man. It is the pure and undefiled blood of the divine Son of God. There is no way that you can outsin His grace that He freely gives to you. So whenever you come to Him in need of His mercy, He has an abundant supply for you. Such that you will be left holding a basket full and you will be wondering, how? How can He forgive me? How is His blood sufficient to atone for my sins? And he will look back at you with a knowing grin as if to say, I told you so. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.